We would be honored if you would join us. Popheads, and welcome to issue 105 of the Tomcast Popcast, coming to you from the sanctity and the seclusion of the Tom Cave. My name is Tom. Thank you so much for listening to this quality independent podcast. Please follow the show on social media at Tomcast Popcast on Twitter, at Tomcast Popcast on Instagram. You can email the show TomcastPopcast at gmail.com. And if you're so inclined to become a financial backer of this podcast, you can become an official member of Pophead Nation at patreon.com forward slash TomCastPopCast, where you're going to get access to all kinds of sweet bonus content. You got audio commentary, video, special video messages, uh, PopCast reads is what I like to call those. And I'm just trying to give you guys a little bit extra bang for your buck for and, and show my thanks for your financial support of this podcast. Thank you to my current Patreons. Thank you to the Aspen Hill Chody, the Batman of Bay Park, Jeff Nail. He is the co-host of The Ringing Ear, a great music-based podcast. Also thanks to Evil Circle, the evilest of all circles. And the Squidmaster General himself, Mr. Brian Broussard, as well as our newest member of Papa Nation, the one, the only, the New Jersey Devil, Mark Wegemer. Finally, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play, all those fun options. And make sure you're liking the show, sharing the show, getting the good, helping get the good word out about the kind of fun we're having here on the TomCast podcast. And I think that's it for you guys. Yeah, thank you so, so very much. So, going to be a little bit of a different show, a little bit of a solo show today. I wanted to talk a little bit this past weekend. It was it was uh, it was supposed to be Comic Con here in San Diego. It was supposed to be uh, the weekend of pop culture events, and it didn't happen. And uh, well, it was a real bummer. Uh, the city lost out on something like 160 million dollars, which is fucking bananas crazy. But uh, as someone, it someone who's gone to Comic Con for 20 years, uh, it it was sad. But I thought it was really nice that that the Comic Con folks managed to put on the Comic-Con at home, a portion of, of, the, of, the, of the Comic-Con, a lot of panels were, are now available online on Comic-Con's YouTube channel. And now I have to let you guys know a little secret. I had to re-record this introduction. So you're about to link up with the original recording that I made earlier, but I think that's everything that you missed. So Comic-Con at home right now. I've been going for 20 years. Here you go. Um, it was, yeah, obviously it was very, very different. It was a very different experience to... Uh, uh, stay at home and, and watch Comic-Con on my laptop. Uh, you know, it was a, there, a ton of great content is available on Comic-Con's YouTube channel. Uh, I, I think I sent out links to several people over the, over the weekend to like, hey, this is something you would like 
this is, you know, check this out when you get a chance. Uh, specifically the Bill and Ted panel, because I know a lot of a lot of my friends and I, we all grew up loving Bill and Ted, so I made sure to send links out to people who maybe otherwise wouldn't have even known that was going on. So I, I love the fact that the event was very open to everybody. You didn't have to have uh, membership in, 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 or, or uh, you know, tickets or whatever. It wasn't like an exclusive thing. This was Comic-Con for everybody. So even if you'd never been to Comic-Con, you got to have a little bit of the sl a little slice of that Comic-Con pie. Uh, that being said, though, I mean, there ha you know, I, I, I don't think anyone would, would disagree that the energy was, was very, very different. Uh, you know, you're at home and you're just watching your screen, basically. There's, there's no uh, engagement with the audience from the panelists. Uh, there's no hooting and hollering and, 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 and screaming and you know, weeping at, at trailers and, and seeing uh, celebrities in real life with our own eyeballs. Uh, so, so, yeah, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the Comic-Con that we know and love so well. Um, but they, I thought they did a fine job. They, they, again, a lot of really great content was out there. If you want to know about specific things that you're interested in, TV shows, movies, games, all, all that stuff. There's a ton of it. Like I said, go to Comic-Con's YouTube channel and, and find what you're looking for. There's a lot of really, really good stuff there. For me, the the, the part that I missed the most was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I've said it before on the show, probably, probably at 2019's Comic-Con, is like I'm not much for panels anymore. It's become, um, I don't want to say a headache, Necessarily, because I know I know I know a ton of people. I, th I think our own beloved uh, Ken Garten is 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 a big fan of of going to the panels. So you know that's that, and that's his thing and that's his jam and that's awesome. I love that. I just know it doesn't work for me anymore. I can't. <laughs> I consider myself a pretty patient person in in life in general. Uh, but when 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 it comes to the idea of standing in line, I, I I'm overwhelmed by this insane feeling that I'm just wasting my time. And it becomes very, very frustrating. Uh, so in recent years, my favorite thing to do at, at Comic-Con has been uh, the sales floor. Now, the sales floor is its own bag of, of nightmarish, hellish uh, uh, wonders. You know, it's kind of like Dante's Circles of Hell all in one place. Um, but the one I like the most, I, like, I really like going to Artist Alley and, and, and chatting up artists and, and, and seeing what, uh, what, what prints and, and uh, little cards and stuff like that they, they might be having for sale and, and maybe even indulging in a commission or two, which I meant to post some pictures on social media, some of my commissions from over the years, but well, I work on the weekends, so I, I got a little wrapped up in that, and I apologize, uh, but I'll get them out to you guys soon enough. I think a few of you guys have probably have seen them already anyways. So that, that was my, my big miss with Comic-Con, and obviously I missed seeing my friends, my friends who come from out of town, who maybe I don't get to see all that often, except for at Comic Con, you know, like 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 Dustin and Nikki and and Jeff and oh Jeff hasn't come in a while. Not Jeff Nail, different Jeff. Sorry, not to be confusing. Um, just you know, my buddy Keith. You know, Keith I haven't seen Keith in so long. Ah, it's a shame. It's a shame. I, I miss seeing my friends, and that was the thing. And, and the real bummer about this year's missing out on it was this was the first summer in forever where my schedule was open enough that I would have been able to hang out, that I would have been able to, uh, to, to, to spend a lot more time with people. Like, I would have taken off a day or two from work. And because and, uh, a lot of times, a lot of stuff was, for, a long, for many, many years, my schedule was shaped by, by school and work and school and work and school and work. And someone would come around and I'd have to make up for the time I missed at, at work over the summer, you know, health insurance and all that stuff. 
so this was going to be the year that I was going to kind of be reimmersed in San Diego Comic Con, and it was it was not meant to be, and that that is a shame. So to any of my friends who are listening to the podcast, uh, I know that I missed you, know that I thought about you all weekend long, and uh, you know hopefully I'll see y'all before next year's Comic Con. Uh, but if not, I very, very, very much look forward to next year's Comic-Con. All right, with that being said, uh, I didn't I didn't give you kind of a, a preamble. I just kind of dove into the Comic-Con thing. But I did want to mention that this is a Tom show today. Uh, just me, solo, going to knock it out. Hopefully knock it out of the park. Um, you know, it, it, it's my fault that it's a solo show because, uh, again, again, I let my work life sort of uh, not control me necessarily, but it, it just, I guess, got a little overwhelmed and I wasn't able to, to pin down anybody to do the show today with me. And that's on, that's on me. That's my bad. So hopefully I will provide enough entertainment to make this show worth listening to. But we got some stories for you. We're going to get into it right now. And hey, buckle up, hold on to your butts, and then rebuckle up again. Uh-oh. <sighs> okay, don't panic. Remember what the instructor said. If you ever get into trouble, all you need to do is... Feels like I'm wearing nothing at all. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. <laughs> Stupid sexy Flanders. All right, so our first story of the day is a bit of a, bit of a weird one that came across on the, on the, on the good old-fashioned internet. And that has to do with one of our favorite movies on the TomCast podcast. And that would be the original Back to the Future, starring, uh, you know, Michael J. Fox... Christopher Lloyd, it's so very, very good. So maybe you guys have come across this story too. Uh, but there is uh, the official anniversary of Back to the Future, the 35th anniversary, I should say, was uh, was uh, a little bit earlier, later in the spring, I think. Early summer, late spring, I can't quite remember. I think we all know that, uh, very famously, Eric Stoltz was initially cast as Marty McFly. Uh but there's a new Blu-ray release. I'm sorry, a new Blu-ray release that's coming soon. That's going to have a featurette. That's going to show never-before-seen auditions for the film. That's going to feature Ben Stiller, Kira Sedgwick, John Cryer, Billy Zane, who you may remember is actually in the movie but in a different role, Peter Deloise, and C. Thomas Howell. Pretty wild. I'm I'm really intrigued, uh, especially with. I mean, are all the all the males auditioning going for Marty or? Uh, it's, it's or maybe see Thomas Howell's auditioning for Biff. I don't, you know, how's I'm I'm, I'm kind of curious how that all plays out. So now, so this news got out, and uh, Ben Stiller and John Cryer sort of joked about how uh, there was no real danger of Michael J. Fox ever being uh, re- recast uh, with with one of them. Uh, but it got John Cryer going uh, via his Twitter that apparently the movie he auditioned for was a very different from what we know and love as Back to the Future. And I don't know how much of it I want to read because it's, it's pretty long. <laughs> but I, I guess I'll just go with it, all right? So here we go. This is, this is John, Quire, John Cryer, quote, It opened with Marty McFly playing the Close Encounters theme on his, on his electric guitar while he pirated a VHS cassette of the movie. And the time machine wasn't a DeLorean that had to travel at 88 miles per hour and have 1.21 gigawatts of power, but, well, a time machine that just needed nuclear fission and a secret ingredient that turned out to be Coca-Cola. He swears to God. 
The final sequence didn't involve a clock tower or a lightning bolt, but instead finds Marty sneaking onto an atom bomb test site with his time machine to be near the nuclear fission that he needs for it to work. In an eerie scene, he finds the test site is complete with exquisitely detailed suburban houses and mannequins to simulate the effect of an atomic explosion on an American town. He goes on. He gets the time machine in place. The atom bomb is about to go off. He's reaching for the Coca-Cola. The countdown is at 10, 9, 8, when he slips and drops the bottle. It shatters on the ground. He's all out of Coke. He panics, understandably so, but then remembers. He's in the 1950s, and any self-respecting American suburban home has a bottle of Coke in the refrigerator. He checks, and sure enough, there's one in there. He pours it into the time machine, but then realizes, oh crap, he has to figure out how to survive an atomic explosion. Again, he panics, but then it dawns on him there's a lead-lined box nearby, otherwise known as a refrigerator. He climbs in, closes the door behind him, the bomb goes off, the time machine activates, and he's simultaneously shot back to the future. And John Carr is well aware, because what he says next is, wait, this all sounds familiar. Clearly, Steven Spielberg loved the scene and repurposed it decades later for the much maligned scene in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull crazy that's pretty darn crazy now uh screen crush the website came out and sort of uh said that cryer's recollection is mostly correct but they did they did dispute that that apparently the, the the refrigerator was actually the time machine so that's even crazier could you imagine <laughs> back to the future where yeah marty applied time travels in a time machine there was that show on fox where uh that one guy time-traveled in a duffel bag. That was weird. Anyways, uh, <laughs> I just, it's just one of those things. I, I, I kind of, one of these stories that I love hearing about, you know, 35-plus years after something's been out. And we know it's a movie that we know and love so well. We, like, me in particular, I, I, I can speak for Cody Thompson on this as well. I mean, uh, we know that movie inside and out, backwards and forwards. We could do a two-man production of it and, and nail every line without ever having to rehearse. So to to find something out like this uh, is 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 uh, pretty interesting, and uh, we'll make trying to track down that uh, that featurette on YouTube very very interesting as well because I'd love to see some of those auditions from some of those other actors, and then what they could have brought to the part. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to catch the uh, the Back to the Future documentary that's on, I found it on Hulu, and it's called Out of Time. Uh, I thought it was really really good, and uh, in that documentary, I, that might be the collection one of the biggest collections of the Eric Stoltz Marty McFly footage is that I'd ever seen in one, one specific location. So if you guys were, were curious about uh, Back to the Future without Michael J. Fox, the Eric Stoltz footage is out there, and you can watch that documentary and see a bunch of it, or you can just go on YouTube. I'm sure YouTube's got all the, all the, different, all the various clips because that movie was almost done. And in case you weren't aware, Back to the Future with Eric Stoltz was almost done filming. Uh, when they finally said, this isn't working. And they basically had to reshoot the entire movie. Pretty wild stuff. So, uh, an excellent documentary. I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, it, it talks about the, the making of the film, but also its, it's uh, cultural impact and, it's, and, and the fans of the movie, too. So, it's a really, I thought it was a really well done, well, pretty well-rounded, comprehensive documentary for Back to the Future. Like I said, I found it on Hulu, uh, but I'm sure there's other sources to find it as well. Amazon Prime, if you want to rent it, and things like that. So, 
Back to the Future. Always good to have Back to the Future in the news, especially as long as that news never has anything to do with it being remade or rebooted. All right, so more more news that we have is about the Emmy Awards because those were announced. And two shows that were uh, uh, podcast specials that we did episode-by-episode breakdowns for are featured heavily in the Emmys this year. And the first show we're going to mention is The Mandalorian. Disney's Star Wars The Mandalorian. That sounds weird. Disney's Star Wars The Mandalorian. The Mandalorian got 15 Emmy nominations, including Outstanding Drama Series. That's pretty freaking awesome. Now, they didn't, they didn't score any nominations for, for writing or directing or any of those things, or, or for acting. No performances were, were recognized singularly. But I think that's probably reasonable because uh, if you've watched the, the Disney Plus special, The Making of the Mandalorian, um, you know it's a very collaborative process. I mean, there's three different guys in that, in that Mandalorian costume at various points. Um, so I, I'm, I'm okay with the acting stuff not getting necessarily recognized. Uh, though Taika Waititi's voice acting is getting recognized for his IG-11. Now, a lot of, like I said, a lot of the nominations are in uh, pretty technical categories, uh, like outstanding character voiceover performance for Waititi, uh, over, over outstanding production design for a narrative program, outstanding cinematography for a single camera series, outstanding fantasy sci-fi costumes, outstanding, you know, a, a lot of stuff in tech. But there's a, a couple music nods, which is nice, and you also get an outstanding guest actor uh, for Giancarlo Esposito as Moff Gideon. So I was... I correct myself. I just said nothing for acting, but Giancarlo's on here. So, uh, pretty darn impressive for a show that was one of our favorites. But may pro- probably was my favorite show uh, of... I mean, I guess technically it falls in the 2019 category, but uh, that show has felt... Its effects have washed into 2020 as I've, as I've re-watched it a couple different times. Uh, so, The Mandalorian scoring an Emmy nod. And like I said, that one for, for Outstanding Drama Series... Is darn impressive. Now it's up against some stiff competition. There's no doubt about that. Uh, uh, the Mandalorian winning that category would be probably the upset of the century for 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 a show. Uh, but not bad, not bad at all. For you know, you can criticize Disney, Disney Plus for not ha- coming out of the gate with a lot of great original programming. But what they did have, i.e., the Mandalorian, was pretty damn impressive. And you know. Hopefully, we get more Star Wars streaming soon. I mean, there's all these talk, all this talk. We know the Obi Wan's in the works. Now there's the Lando rumors. I think I think the Star the Star Wars on Disney Plus as a streaming show is, is definitely the way to go. I'm still advocating for that Han Solo show. I'm still advocating for a Darth Vader series. Um, as far as I'm concerned, Disney Plus can just be Star Wars Plus, and I would be a okay with that. So, great news for The Mandalorian. I'm really excited to, to see uh, Jon Favreau and, and his team of directors and writers uh, get, get recognized in a, in a collaborative way because this show was very much a collaboration in, in so many regards, uh, especially the contributions of, of Dave Filoni with Jon Favreau. So, again, if you haven't watched that documentary, get on Disney Plus and watch it. I mean, what else? I mean, you've probably watched the entire internet by now. Watch that goddamn documentary series. It's great. I think the episode's only 30 minutes long. What are you doing? What are you doing? The other show that we spoke so highly about, uh, 
again, late last season, last year, I actually, I think one led into the other, um, was HBO's Watchmen series. And apparently the Watchmen is dominating in the nominations categories. 26 nominations overall, including nods to Regina King, Jean Smart, Jeremy Irons, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, Jovan Adepo, and Louis Gossett Jr. And they also got a ton of uh, writing and directing nominations as well as some other... I think there'd be a few tech ones in there as well. So a pretty damn impressive impressive showing for Watchmen. Uh, again, they're gonna they're gonna I think they're gonna do pretty darn well. They're in the limited series category, uh, and I think that's a good place to be because I think they're gonna come home with with some serious Emmy hardware, uh, and that says a lot. You know, the show, you know, we, we've we've learned that Damon Lindelof's uh, work with the show, at the very least, is that as that it seems to be at an end, uh, even though he has recently come out and said that uh, even if it doesn't, if, if he's not involved, he's not sure that he wants it to end. He wouldn't be, he'd be okay with it going on in somebody else's hands because maybe somebody else has some another story to tell. Who knows? Uh, but whether it's one season or whether it's more, that first season was pretty darn spectacular, pretty darn enjoyable, uh, especially in light of everything that's been happening with the Black Lives Matters movement here in 2020. You look back and you watch those episodes of Watchmen and you're just like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> like, like, you, you, you kind of feel like a, a, a Lindelof saw it coming. You know, Lindelof, the show's kind of pressing in, in a lot of ways. It's very interesting. Very, very interesting stuff. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to watch Watchmen, again, one of our favorite shows. Uh, I believe you can watch it now through Hulu, through HBO Max, if you're, if you're picking up that service. We recommend it highly. And you can go back and get our, our Watchmen breakdown episodes. Uh, I did, I did fairly comprehensive... Uh, reviews of the episodes of the connections to the comic books um, and we even we even got into some speculations some of which we got right some of which we missed we, we whipped on but that's hey that's that's the name of the game folks yeah you, you can't get them all right not even not even Ted Williams better than a thousand uh, <laughs> and speaking of streaming things because it's a streaming world right now that's that's basically where the majority of our content is uh, Friday this coming Friday uh, Netflix is gonna have season two of the Umbrella Academy, which means that I need to get back on the horse and finish season one of the Umbrella Academy. I just sort of fell off because of school, but I was enjoying the show, and I'm very familiar with the source material from uh, Dark Horse Comics and uh, Gerard Way of uh, My Chemical Romance, in case you're unfamiliar. So that season two is coming out. It's getting strong reviews uh, out of the gate, which is a good sign for that show to hopefully keep continuing and, and being, uh, being a boon for Netflix. So that brings us to the portion of the show. Actually, I'm going to bring up one more thing because I am such an advocate for this show. And everyone who's come around and finally watched it, I think, agrees with me. And somewhat begrudgingly agrees with me that, oh, yeah, you're right. That's a pretty fucking good show. And that would be the long canceled, long gone. I, I, the show hasn't been on the air since 2013. But now, all three seasons are on Netflix, and if you haven't had a chance to check it out before, I cannot urge you strongly enough to watch all three seasons of Hannibal on Netflix. Yes, that Hannibal. Hannibal the Cannibal, as played by Mads Mikkelsen in this series, as he goes up against Dr. Will Graham, played by Hugh Darcy. It's 
the one of the best things I ever saw on network television, hands down. And to this day, it holds up. It's 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 harrowing psychological thriller. It's a horror show. It is a character study. It is riveting television. It is three seasons of of almost absolute perfection. And what I can say about it without spoiling too much is that it's one of the most elegant and beautiful horror stories I've I've ever seen. The things in this show are so gorgeous to look at, are so stunning, so immaculate. And it the way they've sort of not rebooted the Hannibal Lecter character, but the way they just sort of refined him from what he sort of became in the second Hannibal movie, where he was just sort of like a gortastic killer man. This is this is the Hannibal Lecter that you are kind of alluded to in the first one. Refined and elegant, upper class, kind of a snob. And it's it's Mads Mikkelsen is masterful. And uh, Hugh Darcy as Will Graham, masterful performances. The sh- the show, the seasons are like 12, 13 episodes apiece. So you're not you're not on the hook for like, you know, 60 episodes. You can do this. You can watch the show. And then you can you can hit me up on social media and and tell me that gosh darn it man thank you so much for for recommending that show i fucking loved it because you will everyone who watches it will i i i can almost guarantee it you just have to sit there and do it you may not think you want to watch it but you will be captivated by what you see it is engrossing uh, and i brought this uh, this up because a it is on netflix all 3 seasons are now streamable in one location uh, but because basically ever since the show came off the air, uh, uh, Brian Fuller, who helped launch Star Trek Discovery, but Brian Fuller, prior to Star Trek, was the executive producer and the, the guy who brought this Hannibal show to life. And he basically gets asked every six months if they're ever going to get to fo- do a follow-up, if they're ever going to get to do a movie. And so that happened again over on Collider. And you can you can watch the video interview with, with him and, and, I'm sorry, with, with Brian Fuller, with uh, Hugh Dancy, if you want to, it's good stuff. But I mean, watch the show first, then go back to it. The short answer is no. There won't be a sequel or a follow-up, but not because no one wants to do it. It's just because the rights are very complicated to the Hannibal characters. So fingers crossed. But go watch that goddamn show. It's on Netflix now. All right. All right. So now we'll get to the portion of the show where I feel like a lot of you guys are going to turn it off now. <laughs> but at least, hopefully, you've downloaded to it, downloaded the entire episode. So we're we're going to get that that credit for the full episode, right? Because uh, I'm going to talk about Cursed on Netflix. I I talked a little bit about it a couple shows ago. I had watched the first three episodes. I've now watched episodes four, five, six, and seven. Now, the show is not getting strong reviews. It's it's fairly. I don't want to say it's. It's. I find it to be forgettable. Uh, but it's a. It's a show that I want to be so much better than it is, because I think the potential is there, for so much more to be happening. Um, but in these four episodes that I've recently watched, it's sort of been a mixed bag of just bad writing and uninteresting plot points. But counterbalanced by just enough action, just enough. Uh, interesting things happening on the screen that I'm still going to stick around and I'm still going to finish out this 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 show. 
Uh, episode, just to give you guys the, the details, episode four is called The Red Lake, and this is right after uh, Nimue has left the Abbey, and she's befriended Arthur's sister Morgana. You also have Nimue catching up with Arthur after he stole the Sword of Power from her, and they have to go and track down the Sword of Power now, because it's been stolen by uh, the Red Paladins. Uh, Pim mysteriously shows up, Nimue's friend from her uh, Sky People village. Uh, we don't know how she survived the Red Paladin attack. She just shows up in in uh, Hawksbridge for some reason. And uh, Merlin goes about uh, conning Lord Rugen, who apparently is the king of the leper people. Because I guess that's going to be a thing on the show. Uh, but he's there. Merlin's there because he's still convinced that he must obtain the sword of power and destroy it. So he has to go to Lord Rugen, who has uh, ancient fey fire, which is basically just magic green fire, apparently. And I guess it's the fire with which the sword was originally forged. So that's his plan of action. Um, it's it's fine. This episode's fine. The, the, but there was a, there's a lot they left on the table. A lot they left on the table, and uh, that was... That was a bit of a bummer because uh, there's some stuff with Morgana, and she has a uh, within the Abbey she has a another a female lover, which would have been interesting to talk about in the Dark Ages. I'm assuming that's pretty frowned upon back then. That would have been something to to do, but it's just kind of introduced uh, haphazardly, and then uh, quickly done away with uh, because a character that I thought. <laughs> was a, just a throwaway character who was there to snitch on Nimue when she's in the Abbey. This Sister Iris character uh, ends up uh, becoming, uh, ends up turning out to be some kind of a, a sociopath as she uh, burns the Abbey to the ground at the end of the episode. So that pretty wild stuff there. So I guess mild spoilers <laughs> if you're actually watching the show, which I imagine you're not. <laughs> uh, episode 5 is called The Joining. And... It's interesting in the sense that we see uh, Father Cardin, who leads the Red Paladins, meeting up with the Pope. And the, the, the Pope is hell-bent on getting the Sword of Power, is not happy with Father Cardin. So Father Cardin is not happy with the Weeping Monk, and they have to go out because they want that goddamn sword. So what are you going to do? Uh, it, it, there's a lot of back and forth in this one. There's a, a half-assed romance budding between Nimue and Arthur, which I didn't... Again, this guy just stole the sword from you, but now you want to go uh, go play kissy face with him in a, in, a, in a remote hot tub somewhere. And then you also get the introduction of probably my least favorite element of the show, at least thus far, the Vikings. I don't care for this depiction of Vikings at all. I understand where they're coming from for this point in the story that they're trying to tell, because now... You have Uther Pendragon is supposedly the king. I don't know of what, because England's far from unified. But whatever kingdom this is, Uther Pendragon is the king. But this this Cumber, this Umber character, uh, this Viking lord, apparently he has a more legitimate claim to the throne. Merlin knows why. They do get into that in episode 7. Uh, but it's it's sort of becoming like a half-assed Game of Thrones in this sense of kings and, and claims to the throne. Uh, but it's just, it's not executed very well. I've talked about the source material. It is a YA book. 
but YA books can be insanely well done, insanely well written. And, I mean, part of the reason why Harry Potter is a phenomenon that it is is because it, the writing of it reached across generations. It wasn't just for teenagers. Like, adults were reading that book. Old people were reading that book. You know, and, and there's, there's lots of YA like that. A lot, of, a lot of young adult fiction out there like that. This show can't seem to figure out what it wants to be. Is it going to be a YA story that has cross-generational appeal? Because it is the, the Legend of King Arthur. So people can reference that access point in their brain and be like, oh, I know, I know this. The, I know the basics of this mythology. Um, but this is, again, it, it, the show kind of feels like it wants to be a half-assed Game of Thrones at the same time. And the writing's poor. The writing's poor. Particularly in this episode, I found this to be maybe the poorest of the episodes. Uh, it does end with a cliffhanger between uh, Nimue and and uh, Merlin. That was like enough for me to keep <laughs> watching the sixth episode. But again, this show has flaws. It's It has some cracks, and I don't find the cracks to be with the acting necessarily. I find the cracks to be with the story, with the writing, with the motivations. Um, it's just, there's a lot of surface. And there's opportunity to, to go deeper. You know, like I talked about Morgana and, and the girl Celia that she has the relationship with in the Abbey. That could have been interesting to talk about or to explore a little bit further, but it's, it's introduced... Like in a, in a split second, and then done away with, in a split second, and that's a shame. And that's how a lot of the character stuff is too, uh, particularly when we get to episode six. Episode six is is titled uh, "Festa and More," and well, there's a lot going on. So in episode five, we're introduced to a future knight of the round table, Gawain, who is also apparently the green knight in this telling. Uh, now, I could be wrong about the mythology on the Green Knight, but I'm pretty sure they were separate characters. I'm pretty sure the Green Knight was a different piece of, of, of English folklore. Um, I, it's been at least five years since I read it last, and it was in Old English, so, you know, you're always a little... Depending on how you're translating it, you're like, well, okay, all right, I think I get that. Uh, but Gawain and Nimue have a history because Gawain is... Like... I'm sorry, Gawain, like, like uh, Nimue, is fey folk. They are, they are both sky people. So let's talk a little bit about why this is problematic. We've introduced the fey. We're, we're seeing more of the fey uh, uh, races, I suppose, is the best terminology. And they're, they're different. They're, they're magic. They're, you can, they have like that magical creature element that you've seen in a lot of other fancy things. They have like antlers and they have like abilities and uh, different uh, uh, designs on their faces and stuff. They're very not human in a lot of senses. Um, but then you have the sky people like Gawain, like Nimue, who are insanely human looking. That's, I don't know. I just feel like that was the simplest route to take. So they chose to do it. It's like, oh, we're fae. We're sky people. But we look exactly like normal humans. Why? Why does it have to be that way? I, it, it, it was a question I was... I didn't... It was a question I didn't know I was going to ask uh, until he started introducing more more and different uh, fey races. And I noticed the, the, the shocking boringness of... Nimue's fey race, which is sky people, who apparently they don't fly. They have nothing to do, to do with the sky. Uh, they just look like humans. And so, again, I'm interested in seeing if that is part of the source material, because I will be reading that book uh, either in the fall 
late summer, early falls is kind of the plan for for reading Cursed because uh, I, I like I, now I have to do the compare and contrast. I, I I'm so intrigued by what's in the book, but compared to what's on the screen. So again. I think part. I also feel like part of this exists so that you have a, a, a rivalry between Gawain and Arthur because now Arthur is on behalf of mostly because he's he's trying to court Nimue. I, I would imagine at this point, um, he, he's thrown his lot in with with the Fey, even though they don't want a human there at all. But it makes them rivals, and it, they they play like they play like this sort again a sort of half-assed love triangle, and then you f- eventually will find out that Gawain has no romantic interest in in Nimue, more just like a protective like keep away from her you dirty human kind of thing. Again, I'm wondering if we've now. I'm, I know I'm jumping all over the place, but I'm hoping we've progressed past that part of their relationship, and we can kind of get on with things. Uh, because the the weeping monk is out there, and th- there are some cool fight scenes with the weeping monk in particular. He has a great fight scene with Arthur. They do a great little siege on a wood mill. On a, I'm sorry, on a on a wooden windmill. That I I do think it took him a little bit too long to decide to uh, to burn it to the ground. But you know whatever. Maybe maybe <laughs> maybe that was their strategy all along. Better else they just had to pad the episode a little bit more. Uh, it's hard to say. Um. Meanwhile, you have Nimue meeting with Merlin, and you're getting these flashbacks to how uh, Merlin has connections to uh, Nimue's mom and all these things. And there's a lot, there's a lot of information, especially in this episode, the, the Festa More episode. You get a lot of background, uh, particularly about Merlin, his history, and his relationship with the Sword of Power. Again, some interesting stuff in here. Uh, but there's just little things that you're like, who is that? Why is this person here now? You know, and they seem to have a relationship with Nimue that you're like, when was that? It seems like like too much is happening between episodes that we don't understand. Or that we're not privy to, I guess is the best way to put it. Uh, the final episode I watched before recording this podcast is episode 7. And it is titled, Bring Us In Good Ale. I don't think I saw anyone drink on this episode once. So the title is very, very misleading. Uh, again, this is, this is the... Um, this is the wooden windmill standoff. Uh, Nimue is with Morgana and Kaze. This character is introduced haphazardly in the last episode, but now is part of Nimue's posse. Uh, Nimue does weird stuff in this episode as they're going through these, these Celtic caves. Um, and we are, we are told about uh, this demon monster who wiped out a Roman army at one point. I want to say, I'm trying to think of the name of the demon. They they gave her a name, and I'm not remembering it right now. So I apologize. But basically, Nimue gets like the the you're, this. There's a scene in this episode which is very much. I, I feel like they're at this point they're evoking Lord of the Rings as like the sort of power has the power to corrupt, and and has the power to uh, overwhelm its its wielder uh, to do evil and nefarious things. Uh, so Nimue starts to freak out while her and Kaze are in some kind of argument, and then just, for no reason other than like, oh, we need to figure out how to get these two characters apart from each other, she throws the sword like down like a canyon in this mountain that they're traversing through. And for some reason, Morgana has to go get it. And again, that's the character they decide they have to get away from the group, because now Morgana has to be uh, 
fallen under the sway of the demon who's in the story. And they, that, that happens by the demon apparently... Well, I shouldn't say apparently. The demon is able to, quote-unquote, resurrect Celia, Morgana's you know dead girlfriend from the Abbey Fire. And now Morgana is under the sway of this demon. And if you know your Arthurian legend, you know that I'm pretty... Well, at least I'm pretty darn sure that Morgana is going to be Morgan Le Fay, the nefarious enemy of King Arthur. And that seems to be the route they're going. The, the episode ends with what I felt should have been something more stirring, more more powerful, uh, which is Nimue rallying the Fey resistance to, to battle the paladins with the sort of, of power back in her hand after after uh, Morgana recovered it for her, after she stupidly threw it away for no real good reason other than to get Morgana to be possessed by some demon. Or at least corrupted by the demon. I don't think possessed is the right word, because like, at least according to the, the, the legend, Morgana Le Fey is pretty evil on her own. I don't think it's because she's possessed. I think it's because her, her soul has been corrupted. Her spirit has been corrupted. That seems to be the path that maybe they're going on. Um, again, you get more Viking stuff that I, again, I don't care for it. I think it's terrible. <laughs> but that, that, uh, that Merlin information that I talked about earlier starts to pay out. You kind of see that Merlin is starting to figure out plans within plans, but Merlin still has his own agenda. Nimue has her own agenda. Uh, uh, Father Carden and the Red red, red uh, Paladins have their own agenda. Rugen has now dispatched an assassin, a, uh, a, a serial killer, essentially, to go and kill Merlin after stealing the Feyfire from him. Again, we're, 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 this is the seventh episode, and we're still introducing characters. Uh, there, there's a lot, of, a lot of shit going on here. And I think that lends, it's, that leads to that sort of surface description I was telling you about with the show where things are just happening to happen because they need it to happen because you need to get to A to B to C to D. But you're not exploring anything. You're not getting deep on anything. And so you're missing that exploration. You're missing that, that deeper plot point, that, that, that deeper understanding of your characters by not pausing and reflecting and looking in and having... Character A's experience reflect on character B and, and cause change in, in some meaningful way. It's again, it's just surface, surface, surface. It's a it's a sheet of ice at this point. And again, that bothers me. That bums me out because the potential's there. You can see it in the show. The potential's there, but for whatever reason, the writing isn't there. And I don't know if that's an edict from the executive producer that like we, this has got to move faster, faster, faster. Even though the show feels plotting at some points, they seem to have this this thing like we can't go deep. We gotta, you know, it a dip in the road is is far is you know, that's too much. We can't explore these characters that much. It just has to react, read and react, read and react, read and react. I, I will it help will that hold over the next three episodes? I don't know. I'm gonna watch them. I'm gonna find out. At this point, I'm just, I'm in for a penny and for a pound. I got three to go. We're gonna finish Curse season one. I, I wanted I, again. I wanted to end on a high note. I, I, the, the potential's there, which is the most frustrating part. So I don't know if the executive. Exe, I don't know if, if the, the the executive producer and the, the people around them are. I don't want to say competent because that's just kind of mean. But I don't know if they. I don't know if they have a great game plan. Again, it feels like half-ass Game of Thrones at some points. It feels like half-ass Lord of the Rings at some points. And then at other points, it just feels like bad YA. And I know YA can be better. Young adult fiction can be so much better. It is so much better. 
So, again, I mean, I, I, I'm a sucker for King Arthur, so I'm watching the fucking show. I mean, even if it comes back in season two, if it comes back for season two, and it's the same people writing it, and it's the same people producing it, I'll probably still watch the goddamn thing and just hope it gets better. Again, I, I've, I'm a 40-year-old man. I've watched enough TV shows to know that sometimes the first seasons just aren't that great. However, <laughs> in, a, in a streaming society, your first season has to be really strong, or else you're not going to get that second one. So I guess we're just going to have to see how it goes. I, again, I know a lot of people have kind of uh, bagged on Catherine Langford for her performance. She's fine. I just don't think they gave her much to do. I don't think they gave her much to work with. She had a great fight scene in, I think it's in episode four, when, they, when they've recovered the Sword of Power. Uh, that's worth checking out. And again, the, the, the Weeping Monk and Arthur have a really great fight scene. I think it's at the beginning of this episode, of episode seven. And I'm sort of starting to think, we don't know much about the Weeping Monk, I sort of kind of think that he'll end up being someone that Arthur is able to reform at some point and becomes one of the Knights of the Round Table. Like, maybe it's Percival or... Uh, I doubt it's Lancelot. Percival makes the most sense because I think Percival was the Holy One. Um, again, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how this all kind of shakes out. But that is Cursed. Episodes 4, 5, 6, and 7. <laughs> so there you go. And, uh, my friends, that is the show for this week. That is all I've got for you. I'm sure something amazing is going to happen as soon as I hit stop on the record button. But that's what we have. That's why we do the show as often as we do it, so that when new, when uh, when something happens, we can talk about it the next time I re- that we record. So again, thank you all so so much for listening to this podcast. We couldn't we wouldn't be here without you all, without the support of everyone who is taking the time to download and listen to our show. Please make sure you are subscribed to our podcast. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play. We're on all of them. Share, like, do all that stuff. If you've got the time and the inclination, write us a five-star review. They go a long way to getting the word out about what uh, small quality podcasts are doing. Because uh, small podcasts like us, we get lost in the mix. And reviews, for whatever reason, for whatever algorithm it is, they go a long way to getting the word out to people who don't know about us. So thank you for doing those five-star reviews. Again, you can follow the show at TomCastPopCast on Twitter and Instagram. You can email the show, TomCastPopCast at gmail.com. If you're so inclined, you can become an official member of Pophead Nation at Patreon.com forward slash TomCastPopCast, where you will get access to all kinds of sweet, sweet, sweet bonus content as a thank you for your contributions to keeping the show running. Thank you to our current Patreons, the Aspen Hill Chody. The Batman of Bay Park, Jeff Nail, co-host of The Ringing Ear, a damn fine music podcast. Thank you to Evil Circle, the evilest of all circles. Thank you to the Squid Master General, Mr. Brian Broussard. And thank you to the New Jersey Devil himself, Patrick Eliash. I mean, Mark Wegemer. There it is, folks. We did it. Episode 105 in the books. Thank you for being here. And... As we roll into the first weekend of August, MLB is back, but most importantly to me, the NHL will be back officially with the first games of their, uh, I'm going to call it like tournament, with their playoff tournament on Saturday. So on this podcast, we, we only root for one team on this podcast. We say, let's go Caps, and then we say, ciao, babes. So ciao, babes. When you pull on that jersey, you represent yourself and your teammates. And a name on the front is a hell of a lot more important than the one on the back.
We're not going to be fucking sunk this year. We're the Stanley Cup champions.